Come with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 as I read the following verses. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the Word of God. You may want to keep your Bibles open if you are, uh, have a Bible and follow this. I'm just going to summarize this portion. It's a huge portion that we studied in our discipleship groups. So, when was the last time you joined a queue for anything? And so, all around the world, we queue for different things. Maybe less during the pandemic because of social uh, safe distancing. But what we queue for, Chinese New Year, queuing for bakwa, right, reveals what is precious to us. So did you read that Omega Watch and Swatch Watch release a new series, model after the moon series of Omega? And Omega Watch, the moon series, usually sells for $9,000 per watch. But this joint venture produced a series of 16 models, 16 faces, and you're selling at $372. And so the queues built up yesterday. 5.30 a.m. they began the queues at MBS and at ION. By 8 a.m. they had 16 lines, 16 different queues. People just made up their own queues. By opening time, there were about 1,000 people shoving, pushing, and the police had to be called in. Right? What we queue for does reveal what's precious to us. For a while, right, you may have forgotten, the younger ones, Singaporeans, Singapore was famous for queuing for dead cats. Hello Kitty. <laughs> we used to queue for Hello Kitty. And for a long time, McDonald's was not famous for selling McDonald's. It was famous for giving out gifts. And people queued up for that. What we queue for in life, friends, reveals what's precious to us, what we treasure. The early part of Jesus' life, recorded up to this point, his ministry mainly in Galilee, before he heads towards Jerusalem in the last part of his life. The early part of Jesus' life the crowds queued up to hear him, to know him, to touch him, to know that he had the power to perform miracles, power to heal, power to drive out demons. So the queues. But then as Jesus headed towards Jerusalem and unknown to everyone around him, as he mentioned the cross more and more in his life, at least in three predictions, from chapter 8 onwards, the last part of his life, the cues thinned out. They started to dumb Jesus, deny Jesus, and finally betray Jesus, forget Jesus, and dismiss Jesus as they hung him on a cross. So Jesus was precious to them temporarily, precious to them for their personal needs, 
precious to them for their national expectations of deliverance from conquerors, Romans who ruled them. Let's throw off the Roman rule and we'll be fine. And because Jesus didn't fulfill that, the queues went from thousands of people to no one at the foot of the cross, only to mock him. So the story of Jesus thus far, the story of Jesus thus far is this. In the early part of his ministry, he experienced increasing popularity, but increasing popularity for the wrong reasons. We call that self-interested belief, beneficial belief, as long as he can heal my diseases, as long as he can cast out demons, as long as he can overthrow what we think is the greatest problem in my life, Roman rule, then we will follow him. But by the end of his life, the tide turns, the queues thin out, and he now faces increasing animosity and hostility, and increasing confusion about who he is, his true identity. And when you look at that, right, there is no one in human history more misunderstood than Jesus. But there is no one in human history that you must make the effort day by day, year by year, season by season to work out who is this man and who is this man to me and my life and my identity and my eternal destiny. And so to understand the portion that we are covering here, Jesus' last days, the whole portion from chapter 11, his triumphal entry as king, from this point onwards, Jesus, as he enters, doesn't deny that he's Messiah, but he'll be a different kind of Messiah as he's predicting and telling them. Then Jesus in chapter 11, verse 12 to verse uh, 44, to, to verse 44, Jesus judges the temple. And then in chapter 13, about Jesus and the coming judgment. And you know by now, as you read Mark's gospel, right, that Mark, the writer, as he looks at Jesus' life and he collates all the different episodes to present Jesus as faithfully and accurately for us, to believe and to sort out the identity of Jesus so that we can sort out our own identity and security and salvation. He uses usually what we call a burger, a literary device called a burger, so there is the bun at the top, the bun in the middle, and then the meat in the middle. And here is a way to understand this portion. And so it begins with a very strange thing when Jesus ap approaches a fig tree and then he curses the fig tree. Then you're left wondering, what on earth is this? And then he moves in and then he, as it were, cleanses the temple. And then he draws lessons from this fig tree. And we call this a Markenberger for us to understand. And so with that background, we are on steadier ground to understand this as faithfully as we can. And it begins this way. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, and the thing to notice here if you read chapter 11 itself, Jerusalem in the daytime, he would come with the disciples, and spend most of the time in the temple area. But by evening, they will walk back to Bethany. And you walk back to the Mount of Olives, and you ask yourself why, and you will show from chapter 11 onwards, 
usually to rest and usually to pray, and to pray in the last moments of his life that we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane. And a very strange thing that doesn't need to be there, he was hungry. If you were to write an account of your, of your God, right, you don't want to write anything, anything vulnerable about him. You don't want to say that he was hungry. Hung, hungry from what? He could be hungry because he prayed throughout the night. He could have been hungry because, as was his custom recorded in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, he woke up very early in the morning when it was still dark to pray. And so, could there be insights of the Lord Jesus? In the last days of his life, he spent it in communion with God before he went and did business with the temple of God, which had gone awry, off the racks, off the trails. And so he was hungry, and seeing in distance a fig tree in leaf, that means in season, most likely March or April, and the early figs, they say, come on. He went to see if he could find anything on it, and it doesn't say he will find fruit in it, but anything on it, it had leaves, and maybe the first signs of some fruit that you can pick and you can eat. Then he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, I'm sorry, all who love plants and think that plants have a life, right? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. <laughs> and some people believe in this, and it's a very anti vegetarian statement, right? What's Jesus saying here? An important thing to note is that the disciples heard it. If the disciples didn't hear it, they wouldn't have told it to the writer Mark. So, why all these eyewitness details? that it was early in the morning, that Jesus was hungry, that he went up to a fig tree, that he saw nothing from it, and then he cursed it. And then abruptly it switches, and then they came to Jerusalem. As he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers in the seats of those who sold pigeons and would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. There are many deep insights here. In all likelihood, Jesus, the temple area is huge, right? It's huge. I've been to Israel and we just saw one portion of the temple area. I say to you, if you have one trip to make in your life, go for that trip to Israel. And my, my prayerful goal is that I live long enough to lead as many of you on that trip and to share the spiritual lessons, not that it's the holy land, but the land in which God appeared in flesh, and you go there and the Bible jumps out to life and every detail jumps out to life. We may not know the exact places, but the significance becomes really important. In all likelihood, he was in the outer courts. The outer courts was the only place that the Gentiles could enter. And so what happens? In the outer courts, you could buy sacrifices. And why do you need to buy sacrifices? Pilgrims coming to worship. You have to buy sacrifices. And depending on your financial ability, you buy the sacrifices that you can afford. And so they had to buy sacrifices no matter how inflated the prices were. You know what inflation is? All of a sudden, your petrol prices went up. You know what that means. You, I had a good friend who worked as a missionary in Argentina. I've told this story many times. He says, when I went to Argentina, it was suffering from hyperinflation. So we are struggling with maybe 7% inflation in America. And we are thinking of, my goodness, is it depression or is it stagflation? When he went to Argentina, it was hyperinflation at 300%. Which means you queue for bread. 
you start here, the queue is that long to the end. By the time you get to the end of the queue, the price of the bread has gone up 30 times. Will you carry enough cash with you? At the time we went, there were no credit cards. That's, so no matter how expensive the sacrifices, the pilgrims still had to buy them. Then they had many changes. And why? They had to change all the Roman currency into temple tax because the temple tax was paid with the temple currency. And no matter how inflated the exchange rate, right? we Singaporeans are blessed in that our dollar is so strong. But every time our Malaysian relatives come across, yo, you go to the temple area and today we enter, it's 8% higher, it's 10% exchange rate. My goodness, no matter how inflated it was, no matter how unfair the exchange rate, and then the third reason that Jesus saw about this outer court, they use it as a shortcut to bring merchandise, to bring goods between the Mount of Olives and the city. So when you pull the three things together, you could buy sacrifices, you could change money, you could use it as a shortcut to bring your merchandise between Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem. You could do everything in the temple area except worship God. That's totally frightening, don't you think? That something has lost its original intention. That's totally frightening. So I ask you, what would shake your security? When something loses its original intention, you reach 55 and you can take out your CPF. And then they so happen to tell you, your CPF was just paper figure. We have lost your money through our investments. How would you feel? That happens in some countries where you buy the superannuation and when you go and collect it at 55 or 60 years old, they have lost it in bad, invest, bad investments. Have you gone up to a bank, gone to an ATM and you put in the, your card and nothing comes out? The bank has failed you. Have you ever gone to a pharmacy and you can buy no medicines? Have you ever gone to a hospital and you find no doctors and nurses? Have you ever been wheeled into an operation and the surgeon operating for you is not a surgeon, he's just anybody donning a surgical gown and he's cutting you up? That will shake your confidence totally to the core when what was intended no longer fulfills his purpose. You go to the temple, you're supposed to find the true and the living God. The Gentiles will meet the God of Israel who is the true and the living God, not idols. And they would go to temple, to the outer court, and they will find no God and no worship of the true and the living God. And so you find no God, you find no worship of God, your whole confidence in security is shaken to the core. What Jesus encounters here when he enters Jerusalem, on the second day that he's there, he finds sham worship, fake worship, nominal worship, spiritual and moral decay, where worshippers are exploited, where prices are inflated, where the exchange rate profits the priesthood. The worshippers are distracted by activity. It's become a bazaar. It's no longer a temple to meet God, no longer a place to find serenity with God and security with God and salvation with God, but a place to transact your soul. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, 
Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it to a den of robbers? And here Jesus is pulling out two Old Testament quotations, which tells you how much Jesus knew the Word of God, the Scriptures, and how much He committed it to memory at the right time, pull out the right Scriptures, because you could pull out the wrong Scriptures at the wrong time for the wrong purposes. And who is a master of that? Pulling out Scriptures at the wrong time for the wrong purposes, that's how Satan tempted Jesus. He quoted three passages from Deuteronomy, but Jesus, the counterpoint to, to Satan, always pulls out the right passages at the right time for the right purposes, for the right lessons. So how's a prayer for all the nations? It's actually from Isaiah 56 verse 7. And when you read the wider context, what Jesus here is doing, he's not just entering Jerusalem and says, hey, Jerusalem, at this moment, right, if you just bring some reforms to um, no longer charge so high for the sacrifices, no longer um, charge so exorbitant exchange rates for the temple tax, and please don't use this as a, as a shortcut, then Jesus would just go in and that's why he overturned the tables and he brought temporary... That's not what he wanted to do. He wasn't into temporary temple reform, but a fulfilment that all nations will stream into God's redeemed temple in the end. And he, perhaps in mind, or most likely in mind, are two marvellous passages in Isaiah 2 and, and Micah 4. And Isaiah 2, listen carefully. Isaiah 2. Are you going to listen? It shall come to pass in the latter days. And what are the latter days? When it speaks of the messianic age, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. Mountains in the Old Testament, the peaks are always where they build temples. And so God's temple will be built on the highest mountain, shall be lifted above all hills. And importantly, verse 2, all nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, for what reason? so that God may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His path. So all nations will stream into a redeemed Jerusalem, redeemed from spiritual and moral and corrupted worship to offer true worship to the true and the living God. That's most likely the reason. And why? What is the meaning of this? You have made it to a den of robbers. And we read the wider context of Jeremiah you find this. You find the people willfully sinning, consciously sinning in their lives, not loving God, not loving neighbours, not caring for neighbours, right? But yet finding forced security. As long as we turn out in the temple, as long as we bring the sacrifices, our security is secured. Our salvation is secured. But Jeremiah says that kind of behaviour, doing violence to, to neighbour, Right? And finding security is a den of robbers. It's a prophecy of judgment and destruction of the temple. If that is a valid interpretation of what Jesus is saying, then at the heart of what's happening here is key to understanding the whole portion. What Jesus was bringing about was not temple reform, 
not the reformation of the temple, but the replacement of the temple. The end of all fake worship in all Jerusalem and the beginning of true worship in Jesus. His body will be the new temple. He will be priest and sacrifice and temple all roll into one. The start of true worship through Jesus. Why am I laboring this? Most of us here are Asians, Chinese, Malays, Indians, Americans, Caucasians, Indonesians, Filipinas. If I had some Jewish folk sitting here, this slide summarizing what Jesus has said, they are still thinking all that needs to happen for Israel to re resume her glory days is just to reform the temple in Jerusalem. It's just to reform the temple in Jerusalem. And Israel will be back to her glory days. That's why they're still waiting for the Messiah. It's not reformed temple. It's replacement of the temple. It's no longer there. It's Christ whom you crucified and will rise in three days. That's what John says. He will rebuild the temple that took 40 over years to build in three days. And what's the response to this? He's doing this in the temple courts. Who should have noticed something was wrong? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to reform, seeking a way to repent as they listened to Jesus speak about the corruption of, of the religious leaders and the corruption of the temple. No, friends. They were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so, where have you met the chief priest in Jesus' life? You met the chief priest in Jesus' teaching in his three predictions. In chapter 8, verse 31. In chapter 10, verse 33. When Jesus predicted not that the prostitute or the tax collector or the, or the ordinary Jewish person would betray him, he predicted that the chief priests would betray him. And then he speaks about the scribes, the teachers of the law. And what's the first time you met them? The teachers, the scribes came down from Jerusalem. And on first encounter with Jesus, the scribes said of Jesus, He is Beelzebub. They dared to call him, they dared to call him the devil. That's staggering, you know. You must have read books about people being converted from different backgrounds. In my very early Christian life, I read of a Muslim in the Middle East who became a Christian by God's grace. And the title of the book is, I Dared to Call God Father. I Dared to Call Him Father. The religious leaders of Israel dared to call Jesus where the fingerprints of God, the power of God was evidently at work in him and through him and they were daring enough to call God Satan. You couldn't be more spiritually hardened. You couldn't be more spiritually blind and deaf. And so, they were supposed to be gatekeepers of God, His Word, his law, they now became people who kept the people out from God and His temple and the true worship of God. Of all people, the chief priests 
the religious leaders, they should have recognized what Jesus was doing. Of all people, they, it should have unleashed in listening to Jesus and what he just did at the outer courts. It should have unleashed them to do some soul searching of their hearts. Why the heart? Because Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, out of a man's heart come all kinds of evil. But instead of searching their own hearts, they spend a disproportionate or all their time searching Jesus' heart and wrongly accusing him and wrongly condemning him. And so they miss. What is it you miss, right? Through two years of this pandemic, we miss a lot of things. We miss this sitting shoulder to shoulder with one another. Amen? Yes? Yes. Can you show it with your eyeballs? I miss you. You miss me, right? And next week, I'm so, I'm just looking forward, you know, to walking around outdoors without the mask so I can at least see your faces before I come in and see your smiles again, your beautiful smiles. I acknowledge you holistically as my brothers and sisters in Christ. We miss them. There are good things we miss. You know what they miss? The religious leaders miss a salvation moment when they should have spent time searching their hearts. Are we missing something here? Why is this rabbi who was just welcome as Messiah, why is he doing this in temple courts? Should we do some soul searching? They spend their time misjudging Jesus' heart and condemning him to death, as we will see. I just want to pause here and say to you, if you are truly believers in Jesus, I said to you about two, three weeks ago, either here on the sermon at Adam, you can watch, that if you are truly a believer and follower of Jesus, a spiritual habit that you must nurture, a spiritual habit that you must practice, a spiritual habit you must delight in and glory in, is to spend moments searching your heart more than searching other people's hearts. For out of man's heart and woman's heart comes all kinds of evil. When you search your own hearts, you would want Jesus to redeem your heart. Amen? When you search other people's heart, you think everybody is the cause and source of your problem. It's a wonderful testimony that Janine gave, our sister, that God led her there and gave her 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient and love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And that's what happens when you search your own heart. Please don't miss salvation moments in your life. Mark Twain said this, if Christ was here now, right, he would not be a Christian. Do you understand that statement? Because the average modern-day Christian would be such a bad witness to Christ. So is that you? Is that me? Or is this just a passage about the chief priests and the scribes? And so it's all about the religious leaders. No, it's about all of us. Whether it's top-down or bottom-up, right? We need to have this. If Christ were here now, He would not be a Christian. Because our lives don't match. We are so used to fake worship. We are so used to nominal worship. And our fatal problem is we presume ourselves to be followers of Jesus, but Jesus will not recognize Him, recognize us. Most fatal spiritual problem is the problem of presumption. 
You presume you are in the queue for heaven, but you are last in the queue. Actually, you're not even in the queue. The whole religious establishment pre presume if there was a queue for heaven and for the Jews, the number one queue in life was not for watches, was not for food. The number one queue in life was for the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus would have told the story about rich young ruler. You have kept everything, but you need to go and sell because that's your main idolatry, the main stumbling block to the kingdom. And so you presume, we presume ourselves to be followers, but Jesus would not recognize us. Would we be in the back of the queue or may we unthinkably, unimaginably not be even in the queue? When you don't sit and audit your life and say, help me God, I'm a sinner, that out of my heart comes all kinds of evil, then, friends, we're on dangerous territory. And Jesus does a very strange thing. He then draws a lesson about the fig tree. And the lesson he draws about the fig tree seems quite far away from why he cursed it, how he cursed it. And he says, have faith in God. We read this early. And so, whatever you ask in prayer, I just read the bold words. And whenever you stand praying, you forgive so that the Father who is in heaven may forgive you trespasses. Because of time, right? I can only summarize this. In a lesson from the fig tree, you will expect him to spend the majority of time on the theme of judgment. The theme of judgment of the old Jerusalem and the old worship. But it would seem that Jesus draws the true worship of the true God, secured not by the temple, secured by his death as the new meeting place between God and us. And what might this mean? What's this moving of mountains? Moving mountains was a way of saying it's overcoming impossible odds. And God is the only one can overcome human impossible odds. And if that is valid, then one way to understand this, we can only move the mountains that God once moved or removed. And could it be in the context, as you study the language, as you study the theology, that God is capable of removing fake worship forever? And God is capable of installing the true worship of Him forever? And after a while, don't you tire? I want to believe, help my unbelief. We toggle with that, we struggle with that, we wrestle with that, and we trust that one day, God will make us true worshippers of Him, not dependent on what we do, but dependent on what He does. So if that is true, then what is on view here is God can and will end what? God can and will end the useless worship. They are going to the temple, they are buying the sacrifices, they are changing it to temple tax, but it's all useless worship for themselves will not present them holy and blameless before God. And it's actually offensive worship to God. And the three things of the true worship Jesus highlights seems to be this. Faith in God. Faith in God to do the impossible, that God can bring about true worship. Prayer to God to do whatever we ask according to His saving plan of worship and forgiveness to prove 
that we are children of God. What proves that you are children of God? You become a child of God and you're given the right to call God Abba Father if you believe that your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness of sins virtually from God, forgiveness of sins discharged humanly, horizontally in life is the existential proof that you and I are children of God. Amen? And so three markers perhaps of what it means for true worship to come in Jesus Christ. Faith in God, prayer to God, and forgiveness that proves that we are children of God. So when God confronts us about our sham worship, where we still have the appearance of, appearance of doing Bible study, appearance of reading the Bible, appearance of giving, and perhaps still giving to offering, giving to tenga, but no reality of the worship of God, no reality of faith in Him, prayer for this new worship and forgiveness of each other. I remember Ajit Fernando, a Sri Lankan pastor and author who writes that because he's an author, he, he wrote, and each time you write a book, you get people to write commendations of your book, and he got one of his friends to write. And one of his friends wrote a quite negative commendation of his book, or not recommendation of his book. And then he said it was okay, but he found it so hard to forgive his friend for writing a negative um, review of his book. And, and this gripped him and consumed him as number one thing. Day by day, the face of his friend appeared more than the face of Jesus, as it were. And one day he was struggling, he was still wrestling with this. He had no choice but to stop because he knew that God was stopping and saying, I forgive my friend, I forgive my friend, I forgive my friend. He was doing, still doing all the right things. He was still pastoring, he was still preaching, he was still writing books. But he hadn't forgiven the one person he had to forgive. That is sham worship, my friends. That is fake worship. And so what we queue for in life reveals what is precious to us. Amen? And Jesus has come to offer us the true worship of the true and the living God. And that is faith in God to do the impossible. He can turn you and me from insincere and fake worshippers to true worshippers. You must trust in Him to do this. And you evidence this right, by prayer and prayer and faith and forgiveness. A friend in Australia was telling me, a pastor friend, of a church member who ran a business and ran a small light factory. And that year they did really well. And for Christmas, that, that church member who ran this business gave a gift to all the employees. And the gift he gave to all of them, or she gave to all of them, was a Bible. Right. So how many people do you think opened the Bible? Very few people opened the Bible. Right? They unwrapped it, they looked at the Bible, it was still right in a plastic sheet, and they didn't open it. Then one or two of the employees opened it. As they opened it, they found in there a letter and found in there a check of their bonus. Then the word got around <laughs> to the whole company, the whole factory. Open that Bible. <laughs> Your bonus is in there. <laughs> Your promotion is in there. Nobody queued up to open that Bible because we think this can be dismissed. And the content of the Bible, he can be dismissed. 
But when we are told that in there is your, is your bonus, we all open it up. You're queuing up for the true worship of God in Christ Jesus. That's the offer. And don't offer Him sham worship. Sham worship that has all the externalities, but have no faith in God, no faith in Jesus offering you. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Give your life to Him. Let's stand and pray together. For we sing this closing song in ending. God has spoken to you. God has spoken to each and all of us. And when God speaks, His word will not return to Him void. His word is for our salvation, calling us, calling us to repent from all the things that we think are so worthwhile and the treasures of this world that will give us our security and significance but turn out to be nothing. May we hear this glorious gospel and turn to Jesus and know that Jesus alone can bring us to a true worship of the true and the living and the loving God and it's not because of anything that we do, but because of everything, Lord Jesus, you have done for us. In taking the wrath of God, in forgiving us of our sin, and making us the children of God. May we never offer you again sham worship in our lives. And whenever you convict us and confront us of the things that must be dealt with in our lives, the things that we must reflect on, meditate, and surrender in our hearts, for out of our hearts come all kinds of evil, and to ask for new redeemed hearts. May we not deny, may we not run away, but surrender ourselves to you, and show forgiveness, and prove that we are the children of God, calling God Abba Father. And so we bow before you, and ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.